Well, hello, Mom. Glad you're here. Can I ask you a personal and pretty important question? How, how is it with you and God these days? Where, where are you in your relationship with God? I mean, really. Close? Far? Told you it was personal. Pretty important. Would you say, uh, you believe what I've come to believe, that I don't think any time in my life I'm ever really sort of just in a neutral position. I'm either moving toward God in the choices and thoughts of my heart or away from God. How about you? Toward God where you find your heart kind of leaning toward him, where you say, I want what you want for me. I trust that you're good. You're the center of my affections, my purposes, my passions, my priorities. I find my fulfillment, my delight in you in ever-increasing ways or away from God. Where maybe we want enough of God in our lives to sort of check that box and say, I'm a Christian, but we really want to keep it at arm's length because we want to do what we want to do. We don't want him really... We, we can have God in our life as long as it kind of fits with what we want to do. Where are you with God? You can't always tell by uh, appearances. I mean, you might look at me. It's like, well, he's you got the pastor title, so that means he's close to God and always moving toward God. Not true. Any more that I can say about you? Well, you you're in church. You're listening to a sermon. You're, you're, you you must always be close to you must be close to God right now. Not necessarily so. There was a dude in the Bible named Jonah. He was a prophet. Supposed to be a guy who heard from God and spoke God, did whatever God wanted, but he ran from God. How's it with you? We're going to dive into that book called Jonah over the next few weeks together, and we want, uh, want to be able to really get familiar with it. It's an awesome little book tucked in the middle of our Bibles, and to help us start getting familiar with that story so we can grapple with this question of where we are and figure out how we can move closer to God Starting right now, um, let's get familiar with the story in kind of a fun way. Go ahead and watch the screen. God's story, Jonah. So part of God's story is in the book of Jonah, and it begins like this. God told Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh and tell the people they have been wicked, and they should stop being wicked, or I will destroy them. But Jonah got scared and decided to go to the city of Tarshish by boat. Tarshish is in the opposite direction of where God wanted Jonah to go. Can you imagine running away from God? Anyway, when the boat was at sea, God sent a storm. The storm was so scary that all the sailors thought the ship was going to be destroyed. So they threw a bunch of stuff off the ship. I don't know how less luggage was going to help, but that's what they did. While all of this was happening, Jonah was inside the ship sleeping. The captain saw him and said, how can you sleep right now? Pray to your God and ask for help. Then the sailors decided to cast lots to find out who was responsible for the storm. Casting lots is a lot like the lottery. Except when lots are cast, whoever wins doesn't always really win. Like this time, when the lot fell to Jonah. The sailors asked him what he had done to cause the storm, and what they should do to make it stop. Jonah said, pick me up and throw me into the sea. That will calm the storm. But the sailors didn't want to. They tried really hard to row back to shore, but... The ship just didn't go anywhere. 
So the sailors apologized to God for throwing Jonah overboard, and then they threw him overboard. I don't know if they ever apologized to Jonah, but God is the one who made the scary storm. And if you're going to apologize to anyone, you should apologize to God. It's just a good idea in general. So as soon as Jonah was off the boat, the storm stopped. I wonder if Jonah thought to himself, what am I going to do now? Well, God had an answer. All of a sudden, a big fish swallowed Jonah. Yep, Jonah was now inside a fish. Things went from bad to worse real quick. Now the Bible says a fish swallowed Jonah. We don't know if it was a whale or something else. But whatever it was, it had to be big enough to swallow a man whole without having to chew. Kids, always chew your food before swallowing. You're not a giant fish. Anyway, Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Can you imagine being stuck in a dark and stinky place for three days straight? Like a porta potty? Well, imagine being inside a big fish. Dark and sloshy and really stinky. Basically, a porta potty with fins. After the three stinky days, God made the fish spit out Jonah. Actually, fish can't really spit. Jonah got vomited out. Vomit is also known as puke, barf, pearl, oatmeal seconds, upchuck, blown grits, ralph, toss cookies, technicolor yawn, and chunder. Basically, the fish got rid of Jonah through its mouth. Do you get the idea? So while stinky Jonah was there on the beach, God told him a second time to go to Nineveh and tell the people to stop being wicked. This time, Jonah went to Nineveh. Listening to God is always a good idea. When he arrived, he told the people that God said they should turn from their evil ways. They believed him, so everyone, and I mean everyone, fasted and put on sackcloth. Fasting is when you don't eat and pray really, really hard. Putting on a sackcloth is putting on a sackcloth. Now, when God saw how they had stopped doing bad things and were really sorry, he decided not to destroy them. And that's the book of Jonah. So in case you missed it, here's the quick version. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah ran away on a boat. Jonah got thrown off the boat to stop a storm. Fish swallowed Jonah. Three days later, fish threw up Jonah. Jonah told people at Nineveh to stop being wicked and they stopped. God didn't destroy them. And that's a part of God's story. All right. So that's the story. You can applaud for Jonah if you like. I want to encourage you to um, get your Bible app this week, or if you have one of these old-fashioned things with pages in it, get that. It's called the Bible. Read the book of Jonah. There's 48 verses. Read it every day this week. You will find something new and powerful for your life every single time you go through it. We're going to pull some things out over the next few weeks that I think will really make a tremendous difference in our lives and where we are with God. I want to begin that today in this series we're calling Overboard. But first... You might be surprised that you, the person next to you, and me, and Forrest Gump, and Jonah all have something in common. You know what that is? If you remember Forrest Gump, uh, it'll come to you. Go ahead and watch this clip. day, for no particular reason, I decided to go for a little run. 
So I ran to the end of the road. And when I got there, I thought maybe I'd run to the end of town. President Carter, suffering from heat exhaustion, fell into the arms And when I got there, I thought maybe I'd just run across Greenbow County. And I figured since I run this far, maybe I'd just run across the great state of Alabama. And that's what I did. I ran clear across Alabama. No particular reason, I just kept on going. <laughs> I love that. I love how he keeps saying, for no particular reason. Here's the thing. You and I, we run too. We run. So if you were going to say, what are the huge themes of the Bible? You might say sin and grace. That's pretty much sums up everything. Sin and grace. Words we throw around all the time. But I'm not sure we even know really what they mean for us in a personal way sometimes. Sin and grace. What I love about Jonah is it makes it super clear and real concrete. We can grab a hold of it. And it's simple. Sin is running from God. Grace is God running after us. Sin is any time we try to separate ourselves from what God says, God's word, God's will, God's way, God's presence. And his grace is his relentless, merciful pursuit of us to rescue us, intercept us from our own self-destruction, to save us from ourselves. And that's what this book is about. It's what our lives are about. And all of us know what it's like to run from God. There's an old song that talks about prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Sometimes we wander slowly from God, like the slow fade, like in a boat where you look up and realize you've drifted and have lost your bearings. But sometimes we bolt. I used to have a dog named Muggs when I was a kid. And that dog would sit there in the yard with you all day long. But the second you turned your back, if you went inside to get a drink for 10 seconds, you'd come out. That dog would bolt he'd under the fence and down the street, down to see his girlfriend on 17th Street. I'd get on my Schwinn Typhoon, pedal down there, and there he was in the same front yard. I don't think she even liked him. But I'd grab him, throw him in my little baskets, and run him back up toward home. And sometimes we wander slowly, where it's just a slow fade, and our life just finds ourselves one day realizing that we're farther from God than we need and want to be. And sometimes we just outright rebel, and we bolt. We slide under the fence and do whatever we can to get away from this oppressive God. And this started at the very beginning of our story. And our story begins in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, where Adam and Eve, our, our parents, sinned against God. They thought they knew better. They pushed back, and they sinned. And the Bible says, you know what they did? They hid. They ran. They tried to separate themselves from God. And when you hold up the book of Jonah, you look overboard, you see your own reflection in the face of the water there. And you see a person that needs to ask themselves, where am I with God? Really, where are you? So, open your Bible if you brought it with you or your app or whatever. Let's take a look at some of these things. There's lots in here. We'll mine out a few truths today and the next couple of weeks and 
see what we can find. Oh, uh, it's in the middle of your Bible. If you go to the middle of your Bible, you find the book of Psalms. Take a right, go a little bit, and there it is, a couple blocks down. It's Jonah. It's one of the 12 minor prophets. They're called minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they're shorter. They're just briefer. This one's 48 verses long. The other minor prophets are books like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those are the minor prophets. And this, he finds himself right in the middle of that. Very big messages in a few words. And let's start with verse 1 and just kind of start picking it up here. Here is Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came. God's going to speak to you eventually. God's speaking to us all the time. In our conscience, in his word. And the the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah is a word that means dove. He took flight. And son of Amittai means faithfulness. He was a son of faithfulness. How ironic because he's a disobedient prophet. And God says, go to the great city of Nineveh. That would have shocked him to hear great city put by Nineveh because Nineveh was a despicable place, full of wickedness and evil. Great city? Are you kidding me? And I want you to preach to them because its wickedness has come up before me. God calls Jonah. I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was about 500 miles east of where Jonah would have been at the time. It was the capital of Assyria, a guy named Sennacherib. In about 700 B.C., made it the capital of Assyria. If you're looking for a baby name, by the way, Sennacherib, you've got to consider that. <laughs> Assyria was uh, this vast evil empire that were extremely wicked, a city of enormous wealth and power, the original sin city. In fact, other prophets like Nahum say, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, calls it a city of blood, a place full of lies. Everyone, if you ask anyone in Israel what they thought of Nineveh, and Assyria, they would have said, God's against them. God, God wants to destroy them. It was, they were oppressive. They had an arrogant and enormous military force, and they were ruthless and guilty of all kinds of war crimes, cruelty, plumber, plundering, all kinds of sexual unrestrained activity, prostitution, sex trafficking, all this stuff going on in Nineveh. They were corrupt, and God finally says, I've had enough, and I'm going to deal with them, but Jonah I want them to have an opportunity to turn toward me. So I want you to go and tell them that I'm going to deal with them, but I want to give them an opportunity to turn toward me. And Jonah wants nothing to do with it. He's like, you you understand how absurd God's request was, right? am Am I making that clear? It was an absolutely insane request. It was a suicide mission that he was being asked to go on. Not just because he couldn't stand them, but because it'd be like going to Berlin in the middle of World War II and walking up to Hitler and saying, God wants you to change your mind and turn. Going to Moscow, going to, to the middle, uh, in the middle of the Cold War and going, going right up there and, and telling them all to repent. Going to ISIS headquarters and saying, you know, you need to turn to the one true God. It's not likely going to go very well. At worst, you'll be imprisoned. At best, you'll be imprisoned. At worst, you'll probably be beheaded. A hard request that seemed insane. The word of the Lord is like that sometimes. How does that apply to us? Um, I was thinking about Gettysburg. There was a general one time, you history buffs will know the scene, who had a bunch of young men on the line and he decided he wanted the young men in that regiment to move forward and begin to, to lob gunfire and to attack an enemy so it would draw their fire and engage them so that he could bring two other regiments from either side 
and squeeze them in a vice. It was a great plan. But the question is, how does the general go about implementing that plan? Does he go to each individual soldier, sit down, and say, now, son, tomorrow morning we're going to have a plan. Here's the deal. I want you to see the whole map, and here's the picture. And when you hear the assignment, it's going to seem to you like it's really scary. It's going to seem really risky, like I'm sending you on a suicide mission. But listen, I've got a plan, and you're part of a bigger plan, and I really care for you, and I love you, and here's, here, I'm looking out for your best interest. And he gives him a big hug. See you in the morning. Is that how it works? Not usually. All that soldier knows is when he gets up and eats his breakfast like every other day, eventually someone's going to order him to get his gun strapped on, and then he's going to hear these words, charge. And sometimes when you follow a God like we follow, that's all you're going to hear. You're going to hear God say something to you that's going to sound really hard and scary and dangerous and uncomfortable, a move you need to make, something you need to do. And the question is, what do you do then? Do you move and go, respond, obey, or do you go AWOL? Because that will determine how close you are to God. So in the Bible, you've got examples of a guy like Abraham, who God gave a very, very hard word to. I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, and take him up on that mountain. I want to see if you'll sacrifice him. Insane, hard, charge. No explanation, no word of comfort. And you know what? Abraham did that, took his son with every intention of offering him in that way, as hard as it was. Why? How could Abraham do that? Here's how. He considered the one who asked him to do it. And he thought about what God's character was like. And he knew that God, to the core, is good and can be trusted. And if he asked him to do it, he had his best interest in mind. And in that way, Abraham could trust and obey. Everybody say those two words. Trust and obey. Obey. They always go together. They always go together. And it comes out of the character of God. Have you been seeing any orders that look a little crazy lately that are coming from God? A call on your life, something that you know you need to step forward to do, to be, to become, to say that look and feel crazy, you can choose Jonah's way or Abraham's way. Those are the only two ways. To speak to a neighbor, to step up, to speak out, to become part of this Abingdon campus, perhaps. Maybe a scary move, a hard call for some of you. A new campus we're beginning this fall. We need so many to step up and say, I hear the word of the Lord. I'm, this is me. I need to do this right now, even if part of you doesn't want to. We have a baptism splash this afternoon. Some of you need to be in the water with me because you know that's the thing. It's scary. It's hard. It might be embarrassing, but you're ready, and you know you need to do it. You take refuge in a God who is faithful and just. That soldier moves forward and charges because he has to trust the general, even though the general could be a wicked tyrant and not really care about him at all. But you, my friend, have a God, and if he asks you to do something, you can trust and obey. That will lead you toward God. Every time we don't trust enough to obey, it leads us away from God. That's a little bit about Jonah's calling. Let's think a little bit about his response. If you look over in verse 3, 
the next verse. God called Jonah, something I need you to do. But Jonah, he ran away. He ran away from the Lord. Some of your translations will say from the presence of the Lord. And he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port, Tarshish. And he, after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. You know, there's lots of prophets in the Bible, and when God reaches out to call them to do something, um, they often are reluctant. They'll make excuses, like we all do. Oh, I'm too young, I don't talk so good, I'm not, I'm not, my life isn't very pure, Isaiah said. But you know what? Every single one of them, eventually, they talk to God, and God says, I need you to do this anyway, and they argue, and then they finally say, okay, you have it your way, God, and they go and do what God asked them to do, except Jonah. He never does that. In fact, you know what Jonah says when God speaks to him? Nothing. It's the greatest sign of disrespect you can give. When God, when God talks to you and you don't like what you're hearing, talk to him. Argue with him. Tell him anything you want to say, but, but speak back with him. God honors that. Jonah doesn't even give God that. He just says nothing. You're at, you're at, a, you're at a wedding, and there's a minister up front, bridegroom, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? Long, awkward silence. Everyone looks at the bride. Is she not going to say anything? You kind of hope she'll say something, like I do, I will, or something. She says nothing, just throws her bouquet down. Click, click, high heels down the center aisle, out the back door, gone. There she goes. That's Jonah. That's you. That's me. Sometimes we hear the word of the Lord, and we don't even say anything. We just go the other direction. The Bible says he goes to Joppa, 210.85. It was a major seaport, major seaport, just south of modern Tel Aviv is where all the ships lined up. God says, go, and he says, I'm going to BWI. <laughs> Tarshish. Tarshish. We don't know exactly where that is. Some think it was probably Spain or North Africa maybe, but... Some are pretty convinced Tarshish wasn't actually a place. It was sort of a generic way of referring to someplace far away from here. When you wanted to come sail away, come sail away, when you want to get away, you go to Tarshish. Whatever it means, it means the exact opposite direction that God called him to go. I need you in L.A., he says. I'd like a ticket to Boston. You ever done that, run the opposite direction? Not just a slight turn. But like my dog under the fence or a kid who defiantly says to his mommy or daddy, toddler, toddler defiance, no. When do we do that? What's it like to run the opposite direction from God or distance ourselves from God? I think it comes up in everyday little things. Probably not any axe murderers in the room. I hope not. But you know, every one of us every day runs from God. Mark Twain used to say, it ain't those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. Those are the hard parts. It's the, it's the parts that I know there's lots of things we don't understand. You know what? There's some things we really do understand, and those are the things where we choose to say, okay, I understand it. I just ain't doing it. That's the hard part. I don't care what you say about forgiveness, God. I'm not doing it. I'm going to harbor on I'm going to I'm going to cling to this bitterness for a while because it feels great and actually she deserves some kind of I need to get back at him. And so if you want to cling to bitterness you got to move over there to get it cuz God's here and you just ran from God. I don't care what you say about sexual purity. 
I'm not doing it. Can't do it. I don't care what you say about judging others. I don't care what you say about telling the truth. I'm not doing it. I don't care what you say about loving my neighbor. You've never met him. <laughs> and so willful disobedience is this moving, not just a slight course off course, but opposite direction. And you notice it says there, what he was doing was trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. How do you think that worked out for him? About the same way it works out for you, for me, when I try to get away from the presence of God. As if that was a good thing. We think we're going to find a great freedom apart from God. We think we're going to find great freedom apart from God. And it simply isn't so. And it's futile. I remember Nathan, when he was three one time, we were playing uh, hide-and-seek in our house, and he wanted to be the one who went and hid. So he runs over to the couch, takes a pillow, puts it over his head, scrunches his eyes real tight. I'm like, gee, where, where's Nathan? Gee, I wonder where Nathan is. And there's this fanny sticking up in the air. I think that's what it must be like when we hide from God for him. Look at what Jeremiah 23 says. Jeremiah 23, verse 23 and following. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord? Am I just a local God, like wherever, like I just... I live in certain places, and if you're there, that's where I am. And I'm not a God who goes far away. Like when you go on vacation, I guess I don't go. It's like Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I'm not in Vegas. Can anyone hide in secret places so that I can't see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth? He's a God who fills heaven and earth. Hebrews 4 says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everywhere I go, there you are. I was in Scottsdale a year ago with some pastor friends. We were driving along in a rental car, just having a great time. Yeah, it was awesome until about two months later when I got a little piece of mail from the Scottsdale Police Department. Guess what? They, they, they took my picture and sent it to me. Wasn't that thoughtful? With a little note that said I was going 45 and a 30. The, omnip the omniscience and omnipotence of God. So the question is, everywhere I go, there he is. You have to decide and I have to decide whether we believe that's bad news or good news. Can't get away. Is it terror or grace? When we're healthy, when you're in your right mind, you're like, when can I go and be with God? Or as David said in Psalm 51, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. The very definition of hell is separation from God, and yet we pursue it ourselves. When we run from God, we're running to hell. To run toward God is to run to life, real life, even though it feels sometimes so scary. When we run from God, we're abandoning the very thing we need the most. And so I love what David wrote in Psalm 139. He wrote a psalm about how God is everywhere with him, and it's not a psalm where he's saying, oh God, you're a creeper. You stalketh me, surely, and I wish I could get a break from thee. No, no, he's saying, I'm so grateful. Look at this, Psalm 139, verse 1 and 2. Oh Lord, you've examined my heart. You know everything about me. You peer down into the depths of my soul. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. 
You see me when I travel, when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say before I say it, Lord. You know everything about me. And then you go before me. You follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me. If I go up on the mountains, I'm, you're there. If I go down on the depths below, I can't escape this. And you have to decide if it's good news or bad news. So it doesn't make any sense to try to run from God. It's futile. We're just a bunch of kids with our fannies up in the air. Can't fake out God. And also, it sucks the life out of you. It's draining. It's hard. Trying to hide, cover your tracks, remain undiscovered, live a double life. Keep up a facade. It's useless. It's futile. And it's hard. And besides, why would you want to? Because our God is a merciful, loving God who wants to draw us to himself. Because that's where life is. That's where joy and hope and peace So it's a little bit about Jonah's call and his response, but now what does God do? God calls, Jonah runs. What does God do? You know what? This is the grace part. God runs. He pursues. He pursues. And God does this in a surprising way. He sends a storm. You can maybe picture a storm on the sea in those days and how terrifying that would be. I was on a cruise one time and it just rocked a little bit and it was a little terrifying. You can imagine what these sailors were experiencing. Whenever you choose to ignore a word from God, disobey, think you're smarter, rebel against God's call in your life, there's always a storm cloud attached, and it will catch up to you. God sends a storm. I love how the Bible says that Jonah paid for his boat ride. <laughs> oh, he paid. Boy, did he pay. And sin is always like that. It always makes us pay more than we thought we would. The storm cloud always catches up with us, doesn't it? When we go our own way, I mean, there's so many stories in this room we could tell about people who've experienced the very real storm that came into their life simply because of the choices we've made. We got sick, our body crashed, we feel we're overridden with guilt. Someone found out and gotten, got, got mad at us, our innards began to rot away. We lost, our, we lost sleep, we, we lost our sense of peace, we lost a sense of joy, we lost our respect, we lost our family in some cases. We lost money, we lost time, we lose so much, and sin is like that. Tim Keller says it's like radioactivity. It's, you know, sometimes you want to kill someone, you just stab them or shoot them, right? But you know what? You can also expose them to radioactivity, and, and that just sort of shuts down their insides slowly through cancerous mutation of the cells, and you just sort of rot from the inside out. And sin's more like that. It begins to do its work on the inside. I was at Celebrate Recovery on Friday night, our 11th anniversary, with an awesome room of people who, with, who are celebrating what God has done in the midst of their hurts and habits and hang-ups. And the stories around that room of something that seemed attractive at first that turned out to be eating them from the inside out like radioactive pollution, that porn or sexual immorality that seemed so great, the risk, the fun, the thrill, the, the hit of heroin, the, the, the excitement, the harboring of resentful thoughts, the codependency that seemed to sort of satisfy and bring a calm, whatever it might be, they become prisons. 
That's the cloud that always follows, the storm cloud that always follows and is attached to sin. But the beautiful thing about the book of Jonah is it reminds us that sometimes, sometimes we suffer storms and it's just a bad thing that wasn't even our fault. You know, like, like the sailors on the boat with Jonah. It's his fault, but they're in the storm too. But sometimes the storm is the very thing God will use not to ruin us, us. God sends a storm to call Jonah back to himself, to stop his running. And some of you can tell stories about that storm in your life, that lowest point, that hardest time, that scariest moment, that awful period that you would never want to go through again because you were so scared and you were throwing stuff overboard. It was awful. And yet, it was that time when you were closest to God because you were grabbing for a lifeline and his name is Jesus and you knew him more clearly and more beautifully in those moments than you ever have. God sends a storm for Jonah. Overboard he goes. The word for the wind that God sent is the word Hebrew in Hebrew, ruach. It's the same name for spirit of God. God sends it. God is in the storm. The wind that you hope takes you on a boat far away is going to lead to a storm, but God is in the storm. God is in the storm. Some of you are going through a big storm right now. You're like, I don't got time to think about where I am with God. I want to know where God is with me. Where is he? I'm drowning. My life's hard right now. Some of you are going through a big storm, choppy waters. I want to remind you and assure you that God is in the storm. I want to remind you that that storm that seemed so awful and scary to Jonah was the very thing that gave him an opportunity to come back to God. There's an old fable that Tim Keller told that sounded vaguely familiar to me. I think I remember it from my childhood. You might remember it too. It's about an old witch who lives in the deep forest. She has a little rickety house. And as wayfaring strangers would travel through, sometimes she would say, would you like to stay? They would come and she'd feed them a meal and then she'd say, here, sleep in this bed. And they would sleep in the bed. But if they were still asleep when the morning sun rose, they would turn to stone. And then she would take them like statues and put them up in her yard. And they were still alive on the inside, but they couldn't move. They were just frozen statues. It's a wonderful bedtime story for kids. One day, a young man comes wandering through the forest, and he comes upon the witch's house. And she says, would you like some food and a place to stay? And he says, why, yes, of course. And this witch's servant girl sees the young man, and she loves him and admires him and wants to help him. And so before he goes to bed while he's eating dinner, she takes thorns and rocks and stones and sticks and puts them all in his bed and his pillow and under his covers and all under the mattress and makes it as miserably uncomfortable for him as possible. The sun goes down and he goes to bed and he has the most miserable night and doesn't get a wink of sleep. All night long, he's pitching and pulling these rocks and thistles and things out of his bed. He's so disgusted, he gets up before the sun comes up. Storms out the front door and there's the young girl sweeping. He makes some despairing mark to her about what kind of place is this. And before he storms off, she says, the misery that you know now 
really bothers you because you can't compare it to the greater misery that your comfort would have brought. Why did that girl put stones under his mattress? Because she loved him. Those were stones of love. Every parent has stones of love. The storm that God sent for Jonah was a storm of love. And sometimes the reason God lets storms come into your life is because he knows he can use them like sticks and stones under your comfortable life to keep you awake to him you from running any further to help you see that you really need him remember friends whatever storm you're in there is love under the waves God is in the storm God can calm the storm when we turn in trust to the Lord Jesus Christ as scriptures say when we turn in trust to the Lord Jesus Christ put our life in his hands trust and obey he calms our storms he'll be with you in the storm until the storm calms. Some of your storm is guilt. You feel so bad about what you've done in the past and you feel like there's no forgiveness. Things will never become good again. Your family will never forgive you. Your kids will never forgive you. Some of us, it's worry. It's anxiety. You can't sleep at night. Worry about the future. Some of you, it's inadequacy. A storm of inadequacy. I don't measure up. I don't have what it takes. Endless scenarios play out in your head. Fear, anger, addiction. Your family's a mess. Finances, job. All this can be a huge storm. It feels like water's coming over, bad seas. Here's what I would say, three things. One, ask God, how might you use this storm to draw me to you? Reach for God in the storm. Ask God, how is this storm, as awful as it is, a storm of love? And second, know that he will calm the storm, and only he can. Third, in the meantime, Cling to him, trust, and obey. So how is it with you and God? Where are you at? When we run from God, it's sin. When he runs after us, it's grace. Where are you in the race? And if you're honest, like I've tried to be honest with myself thinking about this, I've come up with so many ways where I'm distancing myself from God, keeping him at arm's length, certain areas that I just don't want him to really influence that much. Areas where we say, I really don't know if I can trust and believe that he knows what he's talking about, that he has my best interest at heart. Or maybe there's pain in your life that was so great and you're so deep down hurt that God didn't rescue or stop it, that you've built a little protection around your heart and you're never going to let him come in. That's running from God. Or you've been burned in life. So you don't want to trust anyone or anything, including God. That's running from God. Or your pride that just doesn't like to take orders from anyone. Not your wife, not your husband, not your coach, not your boss, certainly not a preacher. And not God himself. There's lots of reasons that you just don't want God to cramp your plans. If you come to the place where you realize, I'm running from God, that's a, that's a humble recognition. And just simply say, God, I want to turn toward you. James says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Isn't that amazing? It doesn't say if you're already pretty close to God, he likes you and he's probably not too ticked at you. So therefore, you have a chance of being on God's good, good side. That's, that's what we make up. 
But the Bible says is that no matter how far you run or what you've done, if you draw near to God, you turn your heart, the Bible calls that repentance, you turn your heart toward God, he draws near to you. And that's when we begin to recognize this truth. There is no refuge apart from God. There's only refuge in God. There is no refuge apart from God. There's only refuge in God. And so we say with Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord, will you say this prayer with me? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's a strong fortress. The godly run to him, not away from him. You run to him and that's where you're safe. And that's where you're safe. Some of us need to start running back into the arms of the waiting father. Do you remember how it ended for Forrest Gump with the running thing? No? Don't worry, I have the clip. I had run for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours. I'm pretty tired. Think I'll go home now. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are tired and weary, heavy burden. I'll give you rest. Come to me. You got to run to Him. God, our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him to us, pursuing us in love. And in these moments, I pray that every one of us would humbly come before you and say, Jesus, I want to come to you. Some of us, maybe for the first time, to trust you, to take a daring step of obedience toward you, to let go of some sin that is taking us far from you so that we might dwell in your presence and live at peace. I pray these things in the name of the Father, Jesus Christ. This is a perfect moment for us to share communion together. We do that every week at Mountain. This is the moment we'll do that. We'll pass bread and cup. They're symbols of Jesus' own self-giving of his own life. He did that because he was willing to trust and obey when the Father um, sent him to the cross. Draw near to God in these moments, and he will draw near to you. Offer up humbly whatever sin, whatever barrier, whatever blemish, whatever burden is on your heart. And instead of boarding a ship, there's always a ship to take you to Tarshish. But instead of jumping on that ship, why don't we just all right now draw near to the Lord, and you will find him drawing near to you. Let's pray again for the Lord's Supper. Lord, we are grateful again for Jesus, the one who, like Jonah, 
was thrown overboard from the safe ship of heaven to come tumbling down into the depths of this earth to live a perfect life, to die a terrible death, and to rise again to show us the way home. Help us to follow him and draw near to him in our hearts and in our actions. We pray through Christ.